Yeah, we got a little less feedback on the mailbag on this uh, on this book, and I don't know if that's because fewer people have read Matameo, or if Matameo is... Maybe it's, like, is... just not that memorable. Yeah, that's that's kind of my guess. It's an, it's an odd one. I think you can still definitely feel him, like, f- figuring out the formula. Um, <laughs> well, I, and he kind of takes the formula to an extreme that isn't necessary in this one. I mean, we got three villains, like three yep. distinct villains in this one. Right. Yep. Three plot lines, three simultaneous plot lines, mm-hmm. which is kind of taking Nemo back at the ranch to another level. It's like Nemo back at the ranch, and then on my other ranch, and then on my other <laughs> <Right>. ranch. <laughs> it's yeah, it, it definitely feels like there's a lot going on. It seemed uh, like he was he was doing really well for like the the first part of the book, and then like right after you get like. On the first page of chapter 26, he's just like, holy shit, I had no idea where I was going. I need to, oh my gosh, what am I going to (laughs) do? And so then he just loses it for the back half of the book. Yeah, and you have the, and you've got the crows and and the ravens, which are a lot of fun. I love, I, I love the crows and the ravens, but who are then ultimately defeated by like this total deus ex machina oh yeah of this of this kite which just appears out of nowhere like right. i don't know like 30 pages from the end like 25 pages from the end or <laughs> right. something right because yeah. it was like you know it's it's sort of building up both things is like well somebody's gonna have to come back to red wall to save it but no it's like yeah you know, you can't really make this book much longer than 425 pages. <laughs> and so we've got to stop. I'm sorry, folks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so so you end up with this big bird that comes in like the like the nuclear weapon at the end of the stand. Or it's mm-hmm. like this this plot has gotten so intricate at this point. We just need something to take care of like a big part of it for us. Yeah. Yeah, just write it off. <laughs> Man. Yeah, a lot of things are kind of just are thrown out there and written immediately out of the book, so to speak. And that we have this whole, you have the whole setup with Warbeak and with the, the sparrows, and then just like, pow, one battle, all the sparrows are gone. Barely yeah. even, barely even more than a paragraph of them diving in. Right. Um, it's, yeah, he really, th- he, he was, I think he's really ambitious in this book. He really pulls in, like, pulls in all these elements on a scale that I don't think he's done on any of the other books in terms of right. like actually fo- trying to follow all of these elements to their conclusion. And I think that's kind of his undoing. Well, I, yeah, I guess we'll we'll get into that, uh, whether this was, you know, whether his, his reach exceeded his grasp on this one. So, all right, Wallflowers, let's start this show. Back to the Redwall Podcast, your leftist look at the world of Brian Jakes's Redwall books. I'm Matthew. And I'm Sam. And I'm Melly. And this month we read the third book in the Redwall series in publication order, Matameo, which I, I have it on good authority. That's how it's supposed to be pronounced. I was saying it differently in my head, but apparently it's Matameo. That makes sense to me. How, how, how did you used to be saying it? Matimio. 
But then, but then you read the book and they call him Maddie. So Maddie Mayo makes more sense. But like, and then also, I, I watched. Go ahead. That sounds. I yeah, calling him Maddie doesn't really like. I, we call like Richard Dick. Like you know, like the way that we take names and then change them <laughs> to true. something that doesn't even really resemble the first right. thing. Margaret becomes Peg. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you're are you coming down on the Matimio side of I, things? I honestly think that it's like it's totally Matimio. <laughs> Hmm. Well, I, I, I did watch, uh, in preparation for this episode, I watched most of the Redwall animated series on... Wow. Mad- and they do say Matameo in that one. And apparently that's what it is in the, the audiobooks, too. I did not listen to those. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. But the animated series is great. Uh, Tim Curry plays Slagar. It's amazing. Oh, dang. That's I, gotta, yeah, I gotta actually. check this out after this episode, actually. Yeah, it's it's, it's all on YouTube, so just search for, like, Matameo... Like episode, it's like one through fourteen or so. I didn't watch all of them, but um, definitely yeah, the, he's really the last up the act. Scenery. Oh yeah, he's fantastic. I'm gonna drop a little uh, clip of him t- at some point during this episode. But uh, yeah, so Matameo uh, was published in 1989, and it's the third book in the series, and is a direct sequel to the first book, Redwall. Um, picks up with pretty much the same cast of characters. They're just what are we eight seasons on from uh, from from the events of Redwall? So, okay, yeah, but like time doesn't make sense. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's specifically because of the the tracking of eight seasons, he could have chosen any time period. And like, I just sort of assume <laughs> that when they talk about a season, like they kind of make it more clear in this book than they do in other ones that like a season is a year. Yeah, like a season yeah. is basically what constitutes a year for the animals. But yeah. eight's still too short for, like, I mean, you know that, like, Tim and Tess and Matimio are, like, children. But, like, yeah. are they eight years old? Really? It feels right. like they're, like, teens at this point. Yeah, that's, they, that's they felt like teenagers to me, too. I wonder if that had to do with, you know, maybe the mice and, you know, the other the other woodlanders just age more quickly. Like, none of them really seem particularly old either. Like, you know, Matthias just sort of seems like he's a middle-aged guy. Like, he's maybe, like, 45, and he's got a teenage kid who talks yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's interesting, though, because you have that, that time jump, that time skip at the end, again, where it's the future, and Matthias is getting old and is, is getting ready to chill out and hand the sword on to, to his son, um, and it doesn't feel like it's that far forward because you feel like Matameo has just become an adult. Right. Right. So it's not that much further ahead. Right. But also Matthias feels really old. Like Matthias is like getting ready to retire and like sit on the stoop and yell at, at passersby. <laughs> but he just, uh, and like, honestly, his life accumulated in like two adventures. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Ah, well, old man, you've done a lot. (laughs) Like, well, he definitely has a a big adventure in this one. So I I think, uh, as we do, we should um, try to give something of a an overview of the plot of this one, and then jump into some of the themes that we noticed. But um, so yeah, we're we're eight seasons. We're told we're eight seasons on from the the battle at Redwall with Clooney and his horde, and. They're all preparing for a big feast. Matameo is basically just the spoiled brat uh, son of, like, the cop in the in the community. 
Um, doesn't seem to have to do any work. And in fact, they make a big deal about how, you know, he gets sent to do kitchen chores and everyone's like, Oh, the warrior's son having to do kitchen chores. This must be serious. And then up the road comes, uh, a band, a, a band of rapscallions. Um, we've seen this, this before, only this time it's not a warlord. It is a fox wearing a patchwork mask named Slagar, Slagar the Cruel. And his his band of of ruffians um, with slaves in tow. So yeah, so yeah, and and uh, and Slagar is subtle and has an interesting reaction to the Abbey. Of course, later we learn that he has a relation. He he has history with the Abbey, um, but he has this deep fear of Redwall and Wait. of Martin and of the sword and of the tapestry. And he does not want to mess with any of those things, really, directly. Right. But and he so, does want to get his revenge on this community that, yeah. that has wronged him in some way. I want slaves to sell, not dead meat. Give them water. Virtue! Tell Three Claws to watch for my spy. Soon, I will have my revenge. Yeah, so he's walking this fine line between getting revenge and not messing with all these objects he sees as sacred or or cursed in some way that will almost supernaturally, inevitably extract their revenge on him. Exact their right. revenge on him. Um so he infiltrates the abbey stealthily with his, his gang of weasels and stoats and rats. Um, one of the rats, in fact, who's very small, pretends to be a mouse and infiltrates the abbey ahead of time. It's an interesting little note to put a pin in there, I think. Yeah. Um, and drugs the whole abbey and steals away the children to as, as both... Part of his ongoing business, I think, which is of which is a slaver. We later mm-hmm. find out he has this these ongoing deals with the, the villainous rats to the north, but he's also this time specifically exacting revenge on the Abbey and on Matthias. Right. So yeah, so Slagar takes off with with all of the kids, and a bunch of the adults go out for a search party, but they end up getting separated and. Basically, what you end up with is Matthias, Jess Squirrel, the return of Jess Squirrel, um, Basil, Stag Hare, all take off for the toward the south. They finally figure out that that Slagar and his band actually went went south where nobody's ever really been before. Um, they take off, and meanwhile, back at the ranch, you've basically just got this sad community that's trying to, you know, still you know, function, but they're worried about their kids and wondering how they can help. So they end up on this really bonkers scavenger hunt for some information that will help the the, the party that's gone out. Yeah. You've got to have a riddle. You've got to have a riddle. There's like a couple right. of them. They're like, <laughs> you know, just as hard as the ones in the first book. Um, secret signs that are like left in places that only a baby can figure out. And so they rely very heavily on the wisdom of baby magic um, (laughs) to decipher the code left in Redwall by the ancient ones. 
um, so that they can get up to the roof and uh, help out their comrades who are elsewhere. So, like, also the um, the the adult search party that goes out, like, so the kids when when they're in this horde full of like kidnapped children that are going to become slaves, they meet a couple of other people. They meet like Cynthia. And, uh, oh, you know, Cynthia's from Redwall. Um, they met Mm -hmm. Alma and, um, a couple of other characters. And then, like, coincidingly, all of the adults meet their parents. And so it's two groups of, like, roving bands of, of friends of different animal varieties. And, like, the adults get caught in a cave at one point and almost die from the air going away. They run into the Gwasim again, who pledge to help them, but also have a fracture within the Union. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And all of this is just sort of like, you know, they keep coming as they keep coming pretty close to seeing the kids and then they get backtracked and have to, like, do something else or they get caught in a trap somewhere. And then they see the kids again. And it's like this constant approaching, like, almost like Zeno in the hair. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah as close as they can. And it happens like four or five times. <laughs> yeah. I was getting a real, a real Stephen King vibe from these. Speaking of this, this, the stand, you know, that whole intro with the, uh, not, a, not exactly as clearly written, but the, the, what's it? Oh, what's his name? Who's the badger's name? Some, Orlando some, the Axe. Orlando the Axe is following the fox, right? right? <laughs> it's sort of, this, it, there's a lot of following in this mm-hmm. book. Yeah. I was thinking like the 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 man in the man in black um, going yeah, into from the, the gunslinger desert. totally yeah yeah exactly but and it's it's the same holding pattern where you have these sort of two sets of characters at like almost a constant distance between them for most of the book until the right. finale yeah um, with these various points of conflict that really don't change anything of the dynamics in the characters right um, so just, so then. So then this this chase is going on. The the parents are trying to catch up with the kids who are with Slagar, who's leading them someplace mysterious um, that everybody's terrified of. And then you've got this plot back at home where suddenly a bunch of uh, corvids, uh, you know, blackbirds under the lead of General Ironbeak decide that they're going to take over the abbey. So they mount basically a siege from inside the abbey. Since they can fly, they go up and kill all of the remaining sparrow. Yeah. The sparrows have, have left to right. support the, to help. Yeah, to, to to help Matthias and his recovery band. Sort yeah. of like on a suicide mission. Yeah, yeah apparently, yeah. which is really ridiculous because the the sparrow with Queen Warbeak, who we love. Um, one of one of my favorite characters from yeah. Redwall heads sort of due south with her whole army and then get like immediately murdered by a load of rats with arrows, with bows and arrows. And she has a really dramatic sort of final scene and they get to pass on this like text to this this like piece of information from the riddle to Matthias's band to like justify all the work that's been done back at the Abbey, because otherwise what was <laughs> Otherwise, why was any of that happening? (laughs) Right. And then I guess Brian Jakes realizes, ah, shoot, what am I going to do with this plot line (laughs) now that they've resolved their relationship with, like, the main characters? So, Corvid Invasion. 
Yeah. Suddenly. And, and the Corvid invasion plot, I mean, honestly, not a whole lot happens with it. It takes a <laughs> half of the second half of the book for right. it to happen, but I read not a, a whole lot, lot actually goes it. on. <laughs> right. Yeah, not, not a whole lot goes on. It's basically a stalemate because all of the woodlanders are down in Cavern Hole, so they're underground, and they're well laid yeah. in with provisions. Um, the moles have conveniently dug them a bunch of new tunnels underneath that they can basically get around the abbey. They just can't go yeah. outside. And the birds can't get in very easily because Constance the Badger, good old Constance, is still, you know, the big guard there. So that so then you have some practical jokes that get played, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's an extremely low stakes siege. Um, <laughs> yeah. Re- and uh. there's almost a point where... I think there's a point near the start of the siege where it leaves you on a cliffhanger and you think the baby has been kidnapped. But no, in fact, he was immediately rescued by um, Sister May. Right. Who is a great character in in this book. Sister May, probably like the biggest hero uh, in in the entire Redwall plot. Um, Cornflower (laughs) does really well, too, though. Cornflower, who's Matthias's wife now who was such a sketched-in character in Redwall, actually gets to do some fun stuff. I mean, no, I remember her doing the equal amount. Like, in this book, she also still doesn't have a personality. It's just confirmed that her personality is not having a personality. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she's the one who has the idea to, like, dress up like Martin the Warrior and scare the the crows. Because the crows, or the the corvids, they're very superstitious. Um, With good reason, because... In this book, we have, I think, the first real instances of actual supernatural magic going on in a couple of different ways. Um, the General Ironbeak has his, uh, his second-in-command, Mangese, who mm-hmm. we are supposed to believe is a seer, like actually has visions and can see the future um, yeah. until they get to Redwall, and then Martin is basically standing in his way. Uh, yeah. And then, so so these crows are very superstitious, and they believe in ghosts, and they think that the abbey is haunted by the ghost of Martin the Warrior, which it may well be, actually, but that's what they do, is they, they play a bunch of ghost, like, haunted house tricks on them. Um, yeah. Un- until, like we said before, the deus ex machina arrives in the form of this big red kite from the north, who... They wean back to health, and then she just goes out and kicks everybody's ass. Yeah, it's it's sort of entirely unconnected to the rest of the plot in a very strange way. And I think it's also just not... It, it almost feels like an afterthought in the kind of detail it was written. We don't have a lot of detail about the size of Ironbeak's horde. We don't really have that very well set. There's some magpies right. that are going out and getting supplies for it. We don't really understand the extent of the threat that they pose to the Abbey. They're just there to just have a little bit of tension on the back burner while the real heroics are happening. Well, they screw around with the farm and like the farm is, I I think that like all of the, the agriculture that happens at the Abbey kind of ends up being, um, a, a pretty loosely used metaphor. Anytime something bad happens to the garden, which is the desirable thing. Um, because it's like an infinite amount of very good food. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. That's sort of symbolic of like, you know, well, maybe the, the Abbey itself won't actually last forever. And so it was sort of like, you know, this this uh, idea of 
just the Abbey's total destruction because there had to be a threat against it. And so, like, I don't know, the part where they just start going into the, the berries, the berry patch, and just, like, stealing all the berries and stuff, which isn't how you're supposed to dole out food if you would like to keep agriculture around <laughs> forever. You have to take care of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, like... Yeah, the magpies don't really strike me as the farming sort. No, they don't have hands. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Whereas mice, of course, are e- extremely dexterous and yeah, they're fantastic farmers. <laughs> um, duh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot about like sust- like the the con conflict between sustainability and like the rapacious raiders and slavers sure. and. The, the tyrants who do not have, like, a sustainable vision. Right. Well, well, actually, Sam, yeah, and that leads us to basically the, the very last big event of the, of the story, which is Matthias and crew finally track the slavers to a place called the Realm of Malcaris. Oh, yeah, because all of a sudden is... now we have this giant underground kingdom that is evil <laughs> That we didn't know anything yep. about. Yeah, which yep. rules, by the way. That was that was that's great. I love I love just like just dropping that in at the end. Yep. And all of these villainous, these extremely villainous rats, like yep. all yep. kinds of villainous rats. You have the long tails and the servants of Malcaris, who are these two separate huge evil groups, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So you, yeah, so you get the they encounter the long tails, who are uh, this band of like archer, like ranger rats who, for some reason, guard this forest. You, you don't really get a sense of what they do when nobody's coming through. Um, but, yeah. you know, that's that's what they do. Um, you also have uh, an encounter with some creatures that I think we only know them right now as the Painted Ones. As they go through this forest, they get attacked by something. Some some group that live in the trees and seem to be just, uh, like, the most savage of any of the societies we've seen so far. Like, don't even have yeah. language. They just kind of grunt and hoot at each other. I'm going to say this is not the most tasteful representation <laughs> right. of, like, some kind of indigenous population. Right. right. This is Jake's being uh, uh, racist again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like, yeah. Probably, probably the worst I think so far. Actually, yeah. So, so just to wrap up the the plot synopsis, yeah. they get to the realm of Malcaris. It's this giant underground city run by uh, a, a, an entity that we don't see until the very, very end. Um, there's a big fight. Matthias at one point it has to fight a giant weasel ferret rat hybrid thing mm-hmm. called the Werret. Um, and it looks like he died, but really what happened was he, like, fell off the edge and starts freeing the slaves, and so leads a slave rebellion. They all charge up the stairs. They overwhelm the rat army just as the mm-hmm. place starts caving in. Everybody that we, like, yeah. gets out safely, and they With all the make their way back to the Mask of finale. Yeah. Well, um. it's also, you know, uh, while I was reading it, um, you know, like, Matthias and crew, their pursuit was reminding me so much of the Two Towers when... Uh, Gimli and Aragorn and Legolas are are trying to track down the two hobbits until the end when all of a sudden it turns into the fucking Temple of Doom. And it's literally, they go underground, big slave thing, big slave pit, they have to liberate all the slaves, the slaves take over and destroy the place and everybody escapes. Yeah. 
Yeah, so and, where like, to their jump system of in? Government, what is that? I don't know. There were a couple of things. First of all, <laughs> we're at and like is is a thing that I have the same problem with Matimio or Matimeo and also the structure of this book, which is taking three separate things and smashing them together in a yeah. very haphazard way. Which some yes. people would think is cute and clever, but not me. <laughs> I have no, a degree I... in literary criticism, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, what reminded me of uh, of the the realm of Malcaris was uh, Sam's, you know, both of your observations about uh, the idea of sustainability versus um, exploitation. Um, because how does the realm of Malcaris feed itself? Like they're underground. Yeah. They do. You you find out that the place started out as the old Lomehedge Abbey that. Abbas Germain yeah. came from. There was an earthquake and the entire abbey sank into the ground. And that's sort of the foundation stones of this place. And so they actually walk through all of the old fields and gardens of the old Lomhedge Abbey, but they're obviously not tended. So yeah. where is Malcaris and where, where is the, the host of Malcaris getting their food from? What do they eat down there? Each other does. It's the same thing as orcs. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah, I think they're certainly okay. not feeding feeding themselves very well. It's it's this. There's a real. There's the point made very near the start when they're complaining about Slagar not getting back soon enough with new new slaves. Right, they're using um, up they're all like, their slaves. Yeah. yeah, because it's it's again totally not sustainable. They need this constant influx of new new slave labor. I'm confused right. about what labor it is that the slaves are doing though. Building. Yep, just, Some kind just building of the city, building. just cutting rocks and putting them in building place. This vast underground evil ass empire, various evil structures and buildings. You know, you know how it is. You just yeah. gotta build some evil statues and and, and <laughs> temples and so on. You're an evil. You're like an evil underground empire. What else are you gonna do with labor? Right. Um, <laughs> Food, like for one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, it, I don't know. Malcaris doesn't seem to have any any ideas uh, toward like conquest or anything. He just wants to have his underground. Like he's like, I'm gonna be so happy once this place <laughs> is finally finished. Yeah, it's very culty. It's it, it, there's there's lots of like culty sort of Lovecraftian vibes with these uh -huh. like silent robed figures, right. and ultimately Malcaris is this like twisted, scabbed. Is it a cat? No, he's, he's a, a polecat. He's a polecat. Uh, yeah, 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 a, yeah. a polecat. So a polecat is, it's like a really big ferret. Like, yeah. it's, you know, related to a skunk and all the other mustelids. Yeah, but, but he's, he's like, like twisted up. And right. he's got eczema and nobody <laughs> likes him. And he's skinny. Yeah. He's basically Which, Kate Moss. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, lots of like physical signifiers of untrustworthiness, which we all know. Um, if you're not healthy looking, you're probably evil. As we 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 understand this right. as a yeah, general definitely, metric. Uh... <laughs> well, speaking of uh, not you know not looking healthy, let's go back to our you know our our villain prime, uh, Slagar the Fox, who wears this mask and won't let anybody touch it, and in fact, like, will kill you if you try to you know ask what's under the mask. Um, but Interestingly, I thought this was a very strange narrative choice. Um, he just goes ahead and spills the beans like a quarter of the way into the book as to who he is and why he's doing this. And uh, yeah. and it turns out that he's none other than 
the fox chicken hound who we last saw in Redwall, the one who runs into uh, Asmodeus the the viper. And yeah. we're supposed to assume that he died, but apparently he didn't. He got bitten on the face and used all of his uh, gypsy, I'm sorry, fox healing magic um, to more or less not die, but he did go yeah. insane. And so yeah. that's that's why he, he wants revenge on Redwall, because he's written this story um, as, you know, in his head, the ruination of his face and his entire life is all due to the things that the Redwallers did to him. Uh, yeah. Never mind that, like, you know, we all remember the story that he almost got killed by Clooney and came back and they tried to nurse him back to health. And then he decided to rob everybody and murdered old Methuselah and then ran out and got bitten yeah. in the face by a snake. Well, it was awesome when he was telling think- his story because he was like, they held me prisoner in this awful place called the infirmary. And I was like, well, <laughs> right. you know, Western medicine does have the tradition of being awful. <laughs> okay, okay, Foucault. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it a coincidence? No. <laughs> yeah, God. I man, I, I kinda I, I feel like I'm ragging on this book a lot, but I was I was bummed out by that because I loved this like mysterious masked fox. My book has this really great this like there was this really like it's 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 a really cool cover because it kind of has these like naturalistic drawings of the creatures on it. And so the fox Oh I think you must have the same yeah, same copy yeah. I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he's standing there on like four legs, but he has this awesome mask on and you can see like the silk hanging from underneath it it like kind of muffles his fox shape so it just looks kind of off right and then he takes it off and it's like yeah you know okay he's scarred okay he's got this 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 story but it's never really as impressive as the mystery of this like weird masked figure yeah, yeah. yeah. it's a like, problem ultimately it's my like, thing. oh yeah um i feel like he wrote two books and then he felt like both of them were too short. And so mm. he smashed yeah. them together because these are, it's really two different, it's completely different stories. Like the first one, if he just like delayed the reveal of Slagar, that would have been awesome. Um, because it's pretty complete on its own, like up until, you know, they get out of the cave, basically. Um, yeah. And then after that is where it just, it's really bizarre. Yeah, and, and that yeah. was that was my problem with it too, Melly. I think the cave is about the the right moment because the the cave. So Matthias and Band catch up with them. Slagar sets a trap, and they all charge into this cave, and they they bury him under a landslide. And at that point, he goes, "My revenge is complete. I've stolen the Redwall children. I've destroyed the warrior." Revenge. And then his motivation completely changes, like never thinks about it again. Um, one of the, uh, certainly of the three main villains we've had so far, the one with the least interiority, you really never get anything from his perspective the way you did with Clooney or Sarmina. Um, so then they get to the, the realm of Malkaris, and now he wants power and, like, dominion over the, the above-ground world, above that place. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not really a thing that is talked about in the first half of the book at all. No. And you, and like, I think General Ironbeak is the one who has the most interiority out of all the villains. Yeah. Um, yeah. and it's probably up there out of all the characters. We've got a lot of General Ironbeak POV chapters. 
he gets to like have doubts and think about it and talk to his to his accomplices about like his plans. Yeah. Um has like internal like thoughts about how the invasion is going. Um and he's like not the main villain. He's like the third villain <laughs> right. in the book. Yeah. Um yeah, and and the whole Mar- Malkaris thing is just it's it's sort of hyped from the very start because we have a chapter very early on which like tells us about this. Yeah, I get one of those little teaser chapters where it's you know you oh just, yeah you have I a bunch of rats in an it. underground realm and you know yeah. they go and speak to their idol and the idol tells them what like we'll wait for the fox to show up with more slaves. That's it. Which is which is cool. Which is a great a great scene set of this like statue talking to these like hooded silent rats. Yeah. And then it takes about a chapter for the entire empire to crumble from the moment which where our main <laughs> right. characters are introduced <laughs> to it. It's not even like I had forgotten most of the plot of this book and I was kind of expecting and was optimistic about them escaping while leaving this evil empire there, which I thought would have been a great thing to, to like leave in the background that actually their evil can persist Beyond yeah, his encounter sure. with goodness. Maybe Melkaris does, but like one of the other rats takes over or something like that. And you still yeah. have this this empire that's kind of lying in wait in the deep south. Yeah. Yeah, which is like great, which is great world world building and great like leaving the seeds for future books. But no, nope, right. evil cannot survive an encounter with, with Matthias because it will be entirely destroyed. God, you know, it just occurred to me. Um, and probably because I was thinking of this as a story written by an Englishman kind of set in the English countryside, but he did put the big slaveholding empire in the south of the country. Yeah. This is, this is a, 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 a Northwest Englishman. That, I, I, I don't, I don't think he's making Well, I don't, I don't know if the, the, the silent ritualistic rats is, is his like reference to, to London. No. Uh, well, I was also thinking of, you know, like, America had a big slaveholding empire in the south of the country. I mean, yeah, I, I got where you were going with that. It's just that, like, I didn't see it. Like, there there wasn't a whole lot else about it that was that really screamed Confederates to me. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I don't disagree. And really, like, we're running out of cardinal directions to go. Because right. we know that Salamandastron <laughs> is to the west, and we know the Northlands where Martin came from is to the north. So, like, eventually, yes. eventually they'll have to go east, and there will probably be something evil there yeah. too. But yeah, know. and this map, and and it was it was funny. The the map at the start of the book does not have Redwall on it. It's right. just this, right. and it's and it's it's honestly, I gotta say, as someone who has poured over a lot of fantasy maps at the start of books, this is probably the least. This isn't helpful. Well, we thought I would. It's, it's basically a one-dimensional map because it's you could basically draw a line through the center of it and have all of the information because it's just these layers. They right. climb a they, they climb a cliff. They pass through the trees. They cross the river. They cross the desert. They cross the gorge. Or is it the way around? No, that's the right way. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, but yeah, so it's just. Yeah, this, what this it reminds me of no is context. that old New Yorker cover that's, uh, like, what does America look like from the perspective of somebody in Manhattan, where it's just, like, you've got, uh, like, the Hudson River, and then just a couple of strips of, you know, vaguely labeled things until you got the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. I, I did enjoy, like, the thing is, is I actually enjoyed a lot of this book. Um, 
And I think that having, like, the this actual comparison between younger and older characters is really interesting. Um, and I think it's, it's something that isn't done in the same way in the previous two books. Yeah, I well, I mean, Malchris. you've got a huge theme of, uh, like, the parent and child relationship uh, going all the way through this, starting from the very first opening with Orlando the Axe, who's a single father because his wife died and his daughter's been kidnapped and he has to set, you know, Orlando the Axe was following the fox. Um, but then, you know, all of the stuff that happens at Redwall before Slagar arrives has to do with parenting and um, after Slagar leaves and they kill, I don't remember what her name is, but Rolo's mom and they have to figure out what, like, we've got an orphan now and who's going to take him in and... You know, meanwhile, you've got the kids who are, you know, Matthias or uh, Matameo is trying to live up to this expectation of of him as the as the warrior's son. And that's what that's what guides his entire uh, character development in the book. So, yeah, way more way more parent kid stuff than we've ever had in a book. Yeah. And he's an angry teen. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, he's a, he's an angry teen in the way that like Matthias is a, as a kid in Redwall is kind of just not like he goes, his soul progression is not a hero yet. Now I'm a hero. Mm-hmm. Whereas Matameo has like a little bit of actual resistance to, to the parts of the role he doesn't like. He lashes out at people. He's ultimately justified. Yeah. In his that's, initial that's distrust. messed up. Yeah. So yeah, you get this, uh, the, the infiltrating rat Vich, who yeah. the first time you meet Matameo, he's fighting with Vich and calling him a rat. And they're like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Like, you can't just call someone a rat just because you don't like them. That's not how we do it here at Redwall. And then when it turns out Vich actually was a rat and was spying on them, they're like, man, I wish Matthias, would, I wish Matameo would really kicked his ass. Like, he deserved it, you know? Yeah, I feel like the lesson the lesson there is a little mixed about maturity, which is, like, yes, yeah. Matameo needs to grow up, but also you should trust your gut and, like, beat people up <laughs> right. if, they, if they annoy you. <laughs> so, maybe... Yeah, there's, there's, there's some layers to that, I think. <laughs> um, other other societal things. Well, back on uh, Iron Beak just for a minute. So when he showed up and he was called the general, I thought, oh, now we're going to get like an honest to God nod to the once and future king when Wart has to go and meet the birds of prey. And they're they're based on a strict military hierarchy. That would be really yeah. cool. That doesn't really pan out. He's just he's called the general because he's in charge and. There don't seem to be any other ranks or anything. Way less infighting among his his crew than you see normally in a in a crew. Yeah. It doesn't feel like well, because it doesn't feel like a fully realized crew. Yeah. You have like two two properly named characters and then a couple of others who just get names slapped on them somewhat right. arbitrarily. <laughs> um Yeah. It's 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 yeah, a the, very the henchman henchman mad libs that he always plays, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's just a very half formed plot line, yeah. and I I like I enjoyed Iron Beak, and I enjoyed Iron Beak's sessions with his seer, but yeah, it just doesn't feel like it's been fully yeah. fully thought through. And then uh, I also wanted to talk about the the Gwasim because I think that's some of the more interesting sort of governmental stuff we get in this uh, in a couple of different ways. One, uh, R.I.P. Logalog, uh, Logalog from uh, Redwall. Um, does die in in the effort to liberate the realm of Malcaris, and he's the one who actually finds the kids. Uh, but he dies, and then he hands over the Logalog office to somebody, just mm-hmm. 
on his own, which doesn't seem to match anything that we know about the Gawasim. <laughs> That's a good point. I did not think about that. Man. It's it's so, I mean, they're so democratic that they have wreckers inside of their, their caucus who literally leave <laughs> at one point, you know. Um, and then yes. when he dies, he just gets to hand on the mantle of office to the person of his choosing. I don't see the Gawasim going for that. Maybe it's like a symbolic recommendation. I'm okay. Gonna, I'm choosing, <laughs> choosing to read it like that. Yeah, sure. It's it's his nomination and they'll they'll take it back and then have like a really long argument and vote about it. Okay. Yeah. I I could be okay with that. But yeah, 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 then you then this this record caucus is amazing. Um <sighs> what's his name? Uh Scon. Scon the Wrecker, who like they just don't like the way the Gawasim runs and they it almost comes to blows at one point and he's like, you know what, screw this. So, like, we're out of here. It feels very much like a union story in that yeah. Scan's complaints about it are all about bureaucracy <laughs> and that his initial complaints are all about this like internal bureaucracy and all this decision-making process. And sometimes you just got to do things. And I, I was thinking about this because like Brian Jakes was like this working class guy and it really comes through in both like some of his sort of like ecological understandings um, and that he like was a city guy yeah. Um, and also his, like, mechanical stuff, like the way, like, he's talking about, like, these blocks and tackles and, like, these mole constructions for moving mm-hmm. blocks. And I'm, like, sort of, like, having to, to put a little effort into following along his, like, mechanical descriptions, <laughs> because I think this is something that he's really familiar with. And I right. wonder how much this stuff is based on maybe, like, his real experiences with um, union organizing, because he was definitely a lefty. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'd be really intrigued. To see if anywhere he's ever commented on, like, the Gawasim as a analogy for... Or if he, he's subtweeting some, uh, <laughs> like, like workers' union that he worked with at some point. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah the, 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 the schism there feels very on point. Like, having a little schism <laughs> over too much bureaucracy. Um, Although Scon does get what's coming to him, because they immediately... They don't just take off on their own. They decide to go and collaborate with the slavers... And then yeah. immediately get enslaved themselves, and you don't feel bad for them. Which is definitely, like, there's this real solid scab metaphor there, which is that, yeah. like, if you sell out your your comrades, you're just going to get, you're just going to get screwed over yourself. Right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Maybe it was it, just in Lavalog's contract that he could appoint his own successor. <laughs> Darn <laughs> Union bureaucracy strikes again <laughs> um, Yeah I, I did want to talk about religion a little bit Because we do get some some interesting religious stuff Going on in this one um, Including like the, the whole founder legend That I don't know how you lose The foundation stone Of your <laughs> abbey Much less the like burial years, of- right? It's not a long time right. Yeah um, well, so they, I mean, according to how time works in this, it's actually centuries. It's sure. Like, it's like Narnia time. <laughs> yeah. It, uh... <laughs> yeah, actually, let's just say it's Narnia time, and then I don't have to, like, like focus on it so much anymore. I'm, a, I'm okay yeah. with that. Time works um, as the plot requires it to. Yeah, I thought it was, okay. <laughs> I, I thought it was kind of silly, though, that, okay, so they... They find the foundation stone, they have the moles move it out, and behind it is the tomb of Abbas Germain, which is where they find, like, a, a major clue to the, the scavenger hunt. 
and then later on they're talking about it and the abbot's like i trust you sealed that back up and they're like oh yeah it's all sealed no problem he's like hmm that's a shame i wish i could have seen it it's like it was open you could have gone and like you could open it up again you you would have had a feast for that, right? And like everybody in Redwall gets to go down and pay their respects. Or no, no. The tomb is a, but the tomb is like a plot thing, which is it's it's really funny to me because I'm looking forward to reading the other books because I know that this that that this device is such a recurring point. Sure. In yeah. which in it, we've got these things hidden in the abbey, which are going to be like significant to these plots that are going on both within and outside of the abbey. And I'm just thinking that, like, after Martin finished founding the abbey, like, how many years did himself and Esther Maine put into <laughs> setting up all of these, like, contingency plans? Well, he was for- also there. And it's also, like, like they're also specifically mapped out that they had to have, like, some weird cult of future seers to be able to predict <laughs> yeah. that all of this was going to happen that could all work in tandem with, like extremely creative masons and <laughs> see but this one this one makes a little bit less sense to me because okay in redwall the mystery is where is the sword they've hidden the sword for some yeah. reason uh, they're waiting for matthias to show up and and claim the mantle yeah. as as warrior in Mossflower, they've hidden the location of salamandastron which is, that's supposed to be a secret that only the Badger Lords know, so that makes sense. I don't see any purpose for them to conceal the former location of Loam Hedge. No, it, it, it makes very little sense, and it just seems like a practical part of history, because they, are, they have historians. Yeah. But, but I, I, think it's the, I think it's the future seer cult thing. Okay. Um, you have these, I, I'm imagining these, like, three voles in tanks under red wall. You know, <laughs> doing, like, like <laughs> the precog. Sitting over, like, a, an open pit so that they could inhale, like, the the um, the fumes from the earth. Like right. a pythia, like, they're all on three, like, in chairs. And... I was thinking more minority report. The... <laughs> it's the same thing. Same, like, well, same story. Socrates walks in and writes "Know thyself" on the wall. Like, <laughs> I do like the. Uh, I mean, the oracles. The oracles are very cryptic in red, and in this case, we have in, in that it isn't solely solving clues that are, are are left. It's kicked off by literally a sentence from Martin. Yeah, right? a divine intervention. Yeah, very literally. This is like this is like the cryptic message from from Delphi. You know, it's like it's and, and and you've got to like pour over it and work out what the details are. Why I don't Yeah, I really <laughs> I, I really don't entirely get the purpose of like like Martin is choosing to appear to somebody and then it's like, "But I I've chosen you for this message which is imp- which is like cr- of critical relevance." <laughs> But you're gonna have to put in some labor to get the get, right. the, get the results. Yeah, here. you have to bring an extremely annoying baby underground <laughs> into a weird cave with you. Literally, could have said they went south. Yes. <laughs> God. Yeah, and it's and it, I, I think that this is definitely a book where he's sort of where. He kind of had all the ingredients in the last book, and now he's like playing around with the order and the structure of them. Yeah. And in this book, they just 
do not come together quite <laughs> quite as you would want them to. Not as elegantly as like the the pirate ship and floating of Cotier and Moss Flower or anything like that. Yeah, like, no, the, no, the quests really don't come together. Yeah, um, you have some interesting uh, burial rites in this one. Um, so when they they bury, you know, rest in peace, uh, Friar Hugo. Um, there's this this prayer that they say um, that has to do with. Hold on, I marked it. Yeah. Look into the young one's eyes, see the winter turn to spring. Across the quiet, eternal lake, ripples spreading in a ring. Um, nobody mentions dark forests in this book, um, but they do. We know that the Red Wall bury their dead, mm-hmm. and we know that um, we know that apparently the Spera funereal rites are to like build a like a nest in a tree. And, mm. you know, uh, like an open air burial. I thought that was pretty like interesting. Sky, it's like a sky, a sky funeral. <laughs> yeah, sky funeral. Totally. Yeah. And there's, and there's a couple of points of which, which are very funny to me, where they, where, where he takes these like clearly sort of like Western Christian like turns of phrase and just very slightly modifies them. Like, I, I think characters say fur forbid several oh, times yeah. in the book instead uh-huh. of God forbid. Um, <laughs> just this, like very blatant, like I wrote it this way, and I guess like we we haven't been explicit about religion in this. Um, <laughs> which I'm choosing. I mean, you think assume. that they would swear by Martin, right? Mm. I wonder. I wonder if that, if that would be kind of sacrilegious mm. um, in in this in the the Red Wall religious understanding, like because Martin, while he is clearly has like a supernatural power, he was just a mouse. Um, and that's, it's emphasized a lot that he was like a hero, but he was still just a, a, a person. Right. Like the rest of them. There wasn't a ton of gender stuff, I thought, in this one. Um, but I did like, um, there's a, a pretty funny little display of toxic masculinity uh, in the kitchens between John Churchmouse and Ambrose Spike at one point where they're both getting in each other's way and trying to show that they, they're the, the best cook in the kitchen now that Friar Hugo is is deceased. Um, I thought that was... It, it was a pretty funny little thing. I mean, I think there's gender stuff and everything. Right. I can well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just not, not so much Not so much overt gender stuff as I thought in this one scene where, I mean, this is, this is definitely a dick-measuring contest going on in the kitchen. Um, yeah... I mean, the whole... Okay, so, like, can we talk about how Friar Hugo's dead? Um, because, yeah. like, the way that he went out was, like, not... It was very sad for what a profound and important character he was. And his last meal that he made, although lauded by everybody, sounded, like, awful. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that sounded so bad. <laughs> that I was, like... I mean, this book really isn't even great for food. There's like two big, two big meals, I think, described over the course of it. Yeah, which is like, you know, it's better than the first one where there's just the one. Yeah. But they, yeah, and like there's a lot of repetition, like they eat the same stuff. Like, yeah, they're, they're eating a lot of the same stuff that they have in other books. Like suddenly the deeper than ever pie is just deeper as always. Because <laughs> <laughs> they have it like four times in this book. Um, right. But yeah, like, so they get... They, we get an insight into how they actually go fishing and the size of the fish, which I thought was very cool. Oh, yeah. So it's, like, strongly <laughs> implicated that, like, Matthias goes out to go get a fish. 
And, um, like, we're told in a couple of paragraphs how fishing actually takes place, which is, like, they, the fish are the size of them. Like, they've mm-hmm. scaled up also. So, like, mm-hmm. um, the whole act of fishing itself is, like, this very physical multi-day activity where the um, the ultimate goal is to just beach the fish. <laughs> Right, yeah, it's like uh, it's it's like fishing for swordfish or something, where like you hook it and then you have to stay with it for a long time while it tires itself out. Right, yeah, which I thought was really cool. But then they give Friar Hugo the fish, and he makes just just absolute slop with it. <laughs> um, T- tell us about the slop. It's What's, so I'm trying to find the passage, and I, I could just basically describe it. So like it was horrifying as I was reading this. <laughs> um, they. They take the carp and then they put it on a spit roaster, which, like, you have to reimagine a couple of times because, yes, this fish is the size of a pig. That's fine. Let's spit roast a fish, which it's not going to – it doesn't have the same type of fatty tissue as, like, a goat or a pig or something. So it's not going to be (laughs) crispy on the outside and then create this, like, really tender inside because it doesn't have mammalian fat that interacts that way with its muscle (laughs) tissue. So, like – it's that's just it's just not gonna work. But then they take it off, and once again he's gone with like, you know this this creamy like he poaches the already roasted fish for what he describes as a very long time in cream. Which has Brian Jakes eaten a lot of fish with cream in his life? <laughs> like, is that the number one way that he eats fish? Because that's not okay. Like, you really shouldn't do that. Like, the first time I was willing to let it go, like, oh, this could actually be kind of cool. It was. But, like, I wouldn't grill a fish and then let it hang out in milk for a really long time. And then also, like, <laughs> like uh, you know, a series of, enough, like, just herbal, forest herbal medley that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me again. And, yeah, everybody's like, this is really good. And I'm like, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and then he's yeah. dead so he never gets to redeem himself but at least everybody <laughs> pretended R.I.P. Friar Hugo will not be missed yeah uh, <laughs> you know God. maybe like Brother Sedge is going to be able to create something that's actually interesting for one <laughs> Brother Hugo's iron fisted use of cream in the kitchen <laughs> yeah <laughs> It shouldn't stand. Man. Have you, what did you think of the, uh, the pies, Melly? I think there was one passage where there's like all of these, like various, like tart combos with like oh, yeah, different first... nuts and different fruits and these, all these like very unusual com Like, at least I thought I was looking at them and I'm like, huh, that's an interesting combination. That yeah. first feast goes on forever. His, his yeah. descriptions. And it's just, it's just lists of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wild grape woodland pie with canes and hazelnut sauce. There's um, almond wafer topped with pink cream. Uh, um, loaves uh-huh. were everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> then there were the cakes, tarts, jellies, and sweets, raspberry muffins, blueberry scones, red currant jelly, Abbott's cake, fruit cake, ice cake, shortbread biscuits, almond wafers, fresh cream, sweet cream, whipped cream, pouring cream, honeyed cream, custardy cream, Mrs. Churchmouse's bell tower pudding, Mrs. Bankbowl's six layer trifle, cornflowers, gatehouse, gateau, sister Rose's sweet meadow custard with honey glazed pears, Bruce, brother Rufus's wild. Everybody's gonna die of diabetes. It sounds it's a good. Lot of sweet foods. 
I mean, it, it does sound good. I kind of want to get into that six layer, that six layer trifle. And what it, what, what's what's going on in each of those layers? It's a bean <laughs> dip, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you think, Melly? Are you going to do uh, something from the feast, or is this going to be more of a? I don't know. It might be appropriate for this one to do like more like traveling fare, like something that you could stick in your haversack while you're while you're chasing slavers across a desert. Yeah, I don't know if you recall this, but the part with the owl. Mm. And oh, how yeah, the owl extremely the owl. wanted cake. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> the owl just, he was like, he would only speak in riddles, which was extremely annoying. Because I played <laughs> Zelda Ocarina of Time. And <laughs> I have and no patience say, for owls that talk too long. Yeah, and let's Sir just Harry say the, the, meter, the meter of his rhymes was not particularly consistent. <laughs> no, but he was really he was really into telling us how good at rhyming he was. Yeah. <laughs> also, who who knighted him? By what authority? Yeah. I, I presume it's the same authority that 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 bestowed the title Squire on Julian Gingerbeer. <laughs> Julian Gingery, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, you, you were saying about the, the, the cake, Melly. Oh, yeah. So, like, they, um, they're they like, oh, yeah, we definitely have a cake. Here, Logalog has a cake. Did you know that shrews are actually extremely good at making cakes? All you have to do is give them a fire, a skillet, and their ingredients. And it's like, well, yeah, that's what it takes to make a cake. <laughs> <laughs> so and they describe this really weird cake. I wish I could find it. Um, because that's Man. what I'm going to make. I don't, it's like, it's, it's got like honey seeping out the sides of it. It's a white cake with nuts inside of it. Like, mm. like, uh, like maybe hazelnuts or chestnuts, like sort of on the top of it, you can see like some lumps and it's mm. hideous. And, um, <laughs> I'm excited to make something real ugly. Oh, yeah. It tastes really good. So I'm going to make It sounds kind of like the shrews. It, it sounds very appropriate for the shrews, I think. Which is yeah. something really, really thorny and prickly and actually extremely sweet on the inside. This is pretty good. He really liked it. And then they could just keep producing them because the means to make a pie is apparently like... Well, they did run does, out. does he think that ingredients are like not hard to come by? <laughs> they did run out of pies, though. And then there's a point at which they say, well, actually, we can't keep giving you vast quantities of, of, of cake because this is our these are our rations. Apparently, this like honey seeping <laughs> dessert is like a standard part of the shrew rations, which explains why they're so like hyperactive all the time. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> they have a lot of sugar in their diet. It's really Very productive. fast metabolisms. It's, it's honey, so it's good sugar. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cool. Well, we're gonna look forward to that cake. That'll be the first, uh, the first real dessert that you've made for the for the patrons. I'm yeah, excited. which is honestly why I started doing this. I didn't want to make all this savory stuff, but you know. Okay. <laughs> cool. <laughs> well, when we uh, when we compile your cookbook at the end of this, we'll have a nice spread of savory and sweet dishes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think it's a, a good time for us to jump into the mailbag. We did actually have some pretty good responses on uh, Matameo. I'm going to get a couple of these quick ones out of the way. Just uh, Chazzle Azzle is just pouring one out for Warbeak. Um, couldn't, Warbeak. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Yeah. She was yeah. great. And she, she really got like a shockingly poor amount of screen time in this book. Mm-hmm. It's just, she got, she got done dirty. 
Yeah, I mean, a, a heroic death that he gets done with in about 30 words. Yeah. Yep, yeah. yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, let's see. Quad Triple points out that Matthias Methuselah Mortimer is a ridiculous name. Yeah, it's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's seriously, it's like the Alvis Severus Potter of right. <laughs> two of the bravest mice I ever knew. Yes. It's horrible. <laughs> that kid is going to get bullied. Here's another thing um, that I noticed. Okay, so Sam, like, that so, might be the, I think that's the episode title, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> the, that is, I mean, like, J.K. Rowling definitely read Redwall to come up with that just extremely insipid crap. Um, also, I don't know if you noticed, but Sam the Squirrel hangs out with somebody named Gilly. So there's a Sam and Gilly hanging out in this book. Oh my god, you're right. Wow. Interesting. What's up? (laughs) Um, Also, (laughs) three times they say the phrase modest mouse. So, here's my theory. (laughs) (laughs) Millie's got like the cork board, (laughs) all all art made since like 1980, (laughs) connected somehow. Yeah, so (laughs) modest mouse Please contact us to do a cover of the free use music that we're using for our theme song. That would be really good. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate it and accept already. <laughs> Let's see. Steel Dragon Down asks, exactly how did the where it come to exist, especially in a kingdom where all other non-slave beasts are rats? Also, if impossible weasel rat ferret hybrids are possible in this universe, why are they the only hybrids that ever show up? Because eugenics. They're, they're actually not the only hybrid that's... There's... there's oh shoot. Which character had... There's one character at one point who says, I have... That some people say I have X in my Oh, ancestry. Shadow from the first one? No, no, no. There's there's one in this in this book. I can't remember who it is. Darn it. Mm. I, I, I noted this down and I can't find my notes. But there was one character who said kind of as a joke to like explain some quirk of their character that they oh, have X wait, in their ancestry. Um, and it just, it just struck me as again, sort of like breaking that, that sort of sacrosanct line that, of, of like interspecies marrying. No, it was right. somebody, it was like, was it Jabez? Yeah. I think it was the, the hedgehog, right? Yeah. Who said that he had mole in his background? Cause he no, was mole. 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 Yeah. Wasn't okay. it? Cause he was oh, gonna that's right. It. Yeah, no, it was, it was the shrew. It. it was the shrew who said he had mole in his background because he was he was tunneling them out of the cave. Right. Okay. Yes. Which is like super weird, um, but again, <laughs> it's like it, it, it's the very rare example of them just like kind of crossing that line. I, I I don't know about the where at the where where at. I don't think that that's really. Uh, well, I think it's, just I like, think it's where it because I think it's it, weasel it. ferret wear yeah. it. Yeah, but it's like a monster, right? It, it doesn't have ears. Yeah. I think it's described. Uh-huh. It's described as being like earless, like sort of almost hairless. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, it's kind of like the gloomer. You've got another yeah. like cave troll sort of thing. He wears like the big studded iron bands around his neck and around oh, his, yeah. his wrist. And... I that the setup for that fight was was pretty was, was was pretty great with like this the real like gladiatorial. Um, oh, gear yeah. that the wearer had with the net and trident. The net and the trident, totally. Extremely cool. Yeah. That oh, was man. really cool. And the was... whole fight is really cool. Actually, the, all of the fight that happens in the realm of Malkaris is pretty great. I mean, it at one point describes 
you know, rats going down in front of Orlando's axe, like corn to the scythe. Like, I, I think this is by far the biggest death toll we've had in a book so far. Cause mm-hmm. they just, I mean, definitely they commit a genocide underground. Oh yeah. It's, there's so much death. And there's also so much named death in the book. Mm. So many named characters die in a way and, and named non-villains die in a way that I don't think's happened so far. He really steps it up. Yeah. Um, agreed. Yeah, some of the fights are, are pretty great. Some of the fights are just Orlando walks up and he's like, who wants some? And everybody just immediately surrenders, which also makes sense. Yeah. I thought that was kind of cute. <laughs> yeah. uh, Bellardi and Gorse returns to our, our mailbag with uh, a couple of comments. Um, the first one is that uh, she feels that Matameo fucks itself by spinning the gross anti-Roma tropes of the first book into enti- into an entire novel. Chickendown and Slagar don't feel remotely like the same character, and Jake's misses a huge opportunity for ambiguous villainy by having Slagar lie about his backstory. Well, we talked about that second part, but um, I, I completely agree with the first. I mean, you've yeah. taken, taken the foxes from being itinerant healers, and now they're literally traveling around in a painted cart and putting on... And you they're know, child thieves, which is like sort of right. the, it's it's like basically blood libel, right? They mm-hmm. are literally stealing children to right. sell to like an underground cabal. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, and, and he and he just steals children is the thing, um, and that, that that's like that that happens multiple times. It is, yeah, it's a lot. Mm. It's it's very yikes. <laughs> very <laughs> that's a yikes from me. He posted cringe. Um. <laughs> there's there's a couple there's like there's that and the painted ones which are just both like that was just not cool i mean like good. both of them are not cool but when like uh just the way that he describes both of them with like yeah. this just dripping hatred yeah <laughs> yep. for just I, I actually I, I was so unsatisfied with the description of the painted ones that I actually got on the Redwall wiki, which is incredibly fleshed out as it should be for a fandom like this. Um, and apparently we run into the painted ones again later on, and they're treated with somewhat more delicacy than they are in this one, but in this one, just, just yeah. horrifying. Not, opti- not optimistic to see them being treated with real any real dignity. But oh no, not real not dignity, that. but somewhat more delicacy yeah. than than they are in yeah, this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. But oh. God, yeah, no, the the whole I, I yeah, the the child stealing is just so it, it it's it, it in a sense is making the like anti Roma framing of the of of, of Redwall just even more explicit. Yeah. And that it's just like checking off even more of the boxes of villainy. Right. Yep. We were like, yeah. I mean, it's it's abundantly obvious. Maybe not the kids, because you're just sort of like, I mean, when you think about how it's written as like a children's book, like this is where, <laughs> this is where harmful stereotypes actually happen. Sure. Yeah. And so like reading it in real time, like, and, and coming to these conclusions as an adult who now is able to like you know have critical analysis of wow about what racial stereotypes are going to be looking like like you can't feed this to children <laughs> like um no. i ran into a friend the other day as i was like reading this and i was explaining a little bit about the podcast and like two pages later because i told him i was like you've got little kids like they should read these books you know your oldest is sick so she'll be old enough to read them and then like then I turned the mm-hmm. page and it was just like and we only kidnap children and I was like wait <laughs> <laughs> come back <laughs> I take that back 
Don't yeah, let your kid th- read this. I think there's definitely a way to like read it somewhat critically with the kid, but they've got to be a certain age and almost past the age to like appreciate them. Yeah. Um, maybe we can. Maybe we could do like a, a yikes ranking for the books, and we can say you can you can skip the really yikes books. I mean, I wouldn't want to <laughs> read this to a child because I wouldn't want to confuse them. Um, yeah. In many yeah. ways. And I wouldn't want them to think that, like, you know, if you want to be a novelist, you can be as lazy as coming up with names like Madame Mayo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As far as the painted ones go, you could literally just skip that entire chapter since nothing Because happens. it's not integrated. It's yeah. the, the, the book as a whole is so patchwork. Right. It does not. It does not come together as a coherent narrative in the way that previous books have. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. On, on that, I'll I'll uh, go back to Ballardi and Gorse for a minute. Who says it's one of the worst aging books? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. 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 I agree. Do with not that. age well. There's like yeah. a cu- there's a couple of points which I enjoyed in it, and then it generally ruined those um, immediately after. <laughs> yeah. I, I did like this observation from uh, Toucan Monkey AML, another uh, returning uh, mailbag wallflower. I expect you to comment on the early book tendency toward Disney death, Belle backing into deep water and falling down a damn hole. I think that's true. Mm. Uh, Slagar definitely has his. Uh, I mean, it's it's basically like the Gaston moment at the end of Beauty and the Beast, right? Where like right. it's not so much that anybody killed him as him being a villain led to his his demise. And I agree with uh, the the observation that that's the tendency, except for the fact that in this same book, Malcaris gets Shirley Jacksoned by the slaves. Yeah, no, it's he's, he, he's crushed. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got, there's a lot of like... But they, like they, collectively they, crushed. It's not like they dropped a bag of rocks on nope. him. Like... Every slave throws one rock and yeah. eventually buries him under this this Great pile, scene. growing pile. Yeah, that scene that scene rules. Um, but yeah, there's like a, there's that the, the weird back and forth between like very explicit violence, right? Yeah, and again, just like the Disney deaths of people just like falling. Like General Ironbeak is like destroyed in a one on one with the kite, who like basically tears him up. Right, yeah, and then drops him on the floor of the great hall. From yeah, a, then the kite just leaves. Yeah. Then the kite just leaves, and, and Martin's like, and, and 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 Matthias is like, man, I wish I could have met that kite. Right, <laughs> shave our our two plot lines are totally unconnected. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and you know, speaking of that, uh, our friends over at the the Recorder on the Wall podcast. Um, I'm not sure who runs their account there, but uh, they observed that. Uh, note at the end of the book, Matthias keeps his son from beating the tar out of Vich, no matter how justly deserved. And then a beat later, he and Orlando were both chasing Slagar with the, with the intent of outright murder. Um, so it's okay when the older generation does it, dot, 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 they say. Um, I think there's a, actually a very interesting, explicit theme of justified violence in this. In yeah. that I think Constance says... Violence, like, and it's 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 a very odd turn of phrase, but like, violence can be good if it's against badness. And, yeah. and I remember her using specifically the word badness, which is why it's it stuck in my brain because it seems yeah. kind of silly. But she does very explicitly like use the word violence and says that like sometimes it can be good. Um, and that the book is is quite explicit about like there's context within which violence is permissible. 
um, out of necessity and against evil. Yeah. Yeah, uh, this this one uh, made me laugh out loud when I when I read it because, uh, like I said, I watched the animated series last night, and it's so blatant. It's such a blatant turn that happens uh, in the animated series where it's literally Matthias is like, "Son, like we don't we don't hurt other creatures. Like you know, we we don't seek vengeance. We don't seek to hurt somebody." Hey, that's Slagar. Let's go get him. I, I mean, it, it literally happens that fast, and they both, you know, Orlando and Matthias both pull out their weapons and start chasing Slagar. Yeah, and they're like chasing for for vengeance. Ultimately, it's not just even once they've like gotten all that they want from him, they're still hunting him down. Right. Um, and so, in a sense, the Disney death there is to perhaps avoid the moral muddiness of them murdering somebody in somewhat cold blood. Yeah. Not out of necessity. Now, counterpoint to that, Sam, because uh, one of the things that I had written down in my notes is, do you remember how they punish the Corvids, the ones that survived the... Oh, yeah. That was <laughs> grim. <laughs> so they take a bunch of iron bands and put them around their necks and around their feet so that they can't fly anymore. Or they can well, they fly, but not well. Yeah, talk about and then they send again. Them, yeah, and then they send <laughs> yeah, then they send them back to the to the harsh north, and they're like, "Well, good luck." <laughs> yeah, that was that was rough. It's sort of like lifetime punishment. Mm-hmm. You know, you will forever be hobbled for your attempted invasion of the Abbey. Right. Um, yeah. No, that really, I, I, that that had slipped my mind, but that really stuck with me when that happened in the book. It's, uh, and there's like, yeah, I, I think I remember there being some similar themes in Redwall about punishment, but, but again, this idea of like just punishment being a thing. Yeah. Well, I think that that pretty much runs out our mailbag. Did, did you all have some, some final thoughts on this one? No. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, yeah, I think it was, it was definitely the weakest one so far. Definitely enjoyed some parts of it, but both like the weakest narratively and by far the most yikes of yeah. the books. So uh, yeah, problematic is, is the least of it. <laughs> I had I had one personal note to make um, when I was in. I think this must have been like late high school. We found a uh, there was this little forest that we used to go and and hike around and stuff. And uh, somebody had strung up a wire that would be perfect for doing a zip line on. And so we went and we got the stuff and it went across this uh, kind of gully. Um, so the middle of the wire was probably up above, um, I don't know, it was about 25 feet or something. Uh, and so we went and we got the stuff to make a, a zipline runner for it. And I was the first person to try it out. And I got halfway across and it turned out that the wire was not tight enough to carry my weight. So it just bowed right in the middle um, so after a couple of minutes of panic and my hands sweating, I decided to risk it and drop to the ground and I was fine, but I was thinking about that a lot with my hands sweating again during all of the zip lining scenes, uh, when they're, when they're crossing the gorge. Um, uh, because if you had a badger that was too heavy for the rope that was across the gorge, there's no way that bouncing the rope is going to get them across. <laughs> no. Right. That's that just not, stuck. that's not how physics works. <laughs> right. Man. Yeah, that's that's not how zip lines work. And also, uh, how did they get back? Very carefully. 
<laughs> Sir Harry came and picked them up one by one and carried them back across. Yeah, just a lot of... Yeah, I mean, and Sir Harry is also just this this other little deus ex machina who yeah. just appears as necessary. Yeah. Just, you oh, and, just feed him weird cakes. And then gets elected to lead the Sparrow, like the Sparrow trying to get their civilization going again. He's the train, he's, yeah. It, well, he's in charge, but also the poetry instructor. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if, like, the Sparrow talk differently in later books. I, nah, I'm not excited to see the future of Sparrow poetry. That is, <laughs> that is for sure. <laughs> Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to Matameo and uh, contributing to our, our mailbag. We appreciate it. Um, yeah, uh, Melly, we, we had a chance to talk about some ideas for the food, so I'm sure everybody is going to be really excited to see what you come up with for, for this episode. Uh, remember, patrons, you can get... Millie's recipes um, if you're at the $5 level and then also she does a $2 subscriber level if you just really like candy chestnuts which are also really good uh, traveling food so yeah next month is Mariel of Redwall uh, the first time we've had a female main character in one of these books so I'm excited about that too yeah, same. yeah this it. was the first uh, Mariel of Redwall is the first one that I ever read when I was little. Oh. I'm excited about that. I'm excited too. Well, um, if you're listening to the show and you don't follow us on Twitter already, uh, you can find us there at the Redwall Pod, uh, where we run polls and that's where we do the mailbag and we make jokes with other people who are big fans of Redwall. So, um, yeah, follow us there and, and join in the discussion. And thank you, Melly, and thank you, Sam. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, we'll see you all next month. See you next month.